this week we're going to do, uh, are there contradictions in the Bible? Uh, <laughs> put up your hand if you have ever heard someone say the Bible has contradictions. Okay, so as good stewards of the word of God, we don't want to shy away from those things. You know, we don't want to avoid them because that's not what good scholars do. They don't run away from the difficult questions. So we're going to look at that today. <clears throat> we're going to see, are there really contradictions? And if there, there, if there are, how do we handle that? In this fifth session, we're going to look at the whole issue of contradictions. And I'll put contradictions in quote marks because I don't think there are any. But we're going to talk about the whole issue is, does the Bible disagree with itself? Does it disagree with science? Um, contradictions. Uh, if you want to read about the challenge, you can read another Ehrman book. It's called Jesus Interrupted, Revealing the Hidden Contradictions of the Bible, and then parentheses, and why we don't know about them. And there's YouTube videos and other things like that that will really point out what some people believe to be contradictions in the Bible. And what I want to do is to look at three basic categories, three kinds of, quote, contradictions and how we can deal with them. And the biggest one has to do with a synoptic problem. And I'll spend the bulk of my time on the synoptic problem and something called harmonization and how that all works. The word synoptic just means same. And the synoptic problem is how do you explain the similarities and the differences among Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Okay, so the synoptic gospels, how do you explain the similarities and the differences? Uh, what is, again, what some people would say proves that there are contradictions in the Bible, and hence it is not trustworthy and believable. Let me start with some examples just to make sure you understand what the synoptic problem is. There, uh, there's similar similarities and differences, for example, in wordings. In wording, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the same event, you'll see that often they're word for word very much the same. If you go to Matthew 3.7 and Luke 3.7, you'll see descriptions of uh, John's ministry, and you'll see that they're almost exactly the same. And they're same in Greek, by the way, as, as well as in English. And yet, there are differences in wording, right? You have the two thieves on the cross, and in Matthew and in Mark, they're reviling Jesus. But in Luke, one of them repents. How do you explain the similarity and yet the differences in wording? There's also similarity and differences in terms of the order of things. All three synoptics basically agree that there was, Jesus primarily had a ministry in Galilee, a travel ministry, and a, travel, and a ministry in Jerusalem. So basic agreement on things. But yet there's also differences in order. For example, the temptation. In Matthew, the temptations are turn the stone to bread, jump off the temple, worship me. In Luke, he, he flips the last two. The temptations in Luke are stones to bread, worship me, jump off the temple. Okay, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? We'll talk about it in a bit. Uh, but there, there is similarity and differences in both the wording and in the order of things in the synoptics. Well, I think that the best way to answer the question as to why these things exist is to let the Bible speak for itself. So one of the more important passages is in the prologue to Luke, in Luke 1, 1 to 4. And let me just read it for you. Said so Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account, and that's the important word, one of them, for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Basically, Luke is saying, I'm going to write a term paper. Uh, I'm going to research. Other people have written accounts, and I'm going to see what they've done. I'm going to do my own research. And then I'm going to put it together in an orderly way, not necessarily chronological, but in an orderly way, because uh, Luke wants Theophilus to know the certainty of the things he has been taught. Now, Theophilus was probably a young Christian, and I don't know if he was wondering or not, but Luke wanted to, him to understand that these things really did happen. This wasn't just all myth. And so he tells you right up front that there is selection and purpose, right? There's a lot of accounts going on, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to get the ones I want to tell you about. And the purpose is, among other things, historical credibility. You see the same thing elsewhere. For example, in the end of John, in John 21, verse 25, John writes, Jesus did many other things as well. 
If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Perhaps a little hyperbolic, but uh, the point is that there was selection, right? There's a lot of things that the gospel writers could have told us, but they're going to select some of it. And what stories they select is based on their purpose. Okay, Luke's purpose was historical reliability. It's interesting, if you go earlier in John 20, uh, we see John's purpose. So Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, so selection. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And not just any kind of Messiah, the Son of God kind of Messiah. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So you have some pretty strong statements there that there were a lot of accounts out there. And the gospel writers went out and they had a purpose. They had some groups of purposes. And those purposes became the grid by which they made their decision as to which accounts they would remember and which ones, uh, which ones they recorded and which ones they wouldn't record. Okay, So purpose and selection. Along comes harmonization then. And harmonization is, is very simple. It's harmonization just asks the question, is there a way to conceive of an event having happened such that both accounts could be true? Can you harmonize the passages? Is there a way to picture two thieves on the cross reviling Jesus and a thief on the cross repenting? Is there, is there a way to harmonize those two? Is there a way to conceive of how the situation may actually have happened that could have given rise to both accounts and both are yet accurate and true? I mean, you don't have to be able to prove the harmonization is right. I think you just have to say, is it possible? A friend of mine tells a story that when he teaches synoptic problem in college, before he starts, he takes two students and he puts them out in the hallway. He presents the synoptic problem and then he calls in one student and he says, okay, tell us what happened the last 10 minutes. And he'll re, re, tell them what happened. And then they bring in the other student. They say, now tell us what happened the last 10 minutes. And as the second student starts to describe what happened out in the hallway, and they're both in the same hall at the same time in the same school. As the second student starts explaining what happened, the students in the classroom start to giggle and laugh because they can see the point. Because it's kind of like, were you guys both in the same hall at the same time? Because while you saw some things that were the same, you saw a lot of things that were different. And George says it happens every single semester. He does it. And he gets the same result. Well, that's what harmonization is. Can you conceive of a situation that could have given rise to these two apparently divergent accounts, but yet both could be true? The best example I know of this are the birth narratives. And let me just walk through this, and I apologize up front. I'm probably going to ruin uh, some of your nativity scenes, but I'm not the one doing it. The Bible's doing it. <laughs> but if you look at Matthew and at Luke, it's really interesting. Matthew starts with the genealogy. Luke starts with the angels' visits uh, and uh, the, the whole business of John the Baptist. And then they both come together, and they both agree that Jesus was born, and shepherds came to visit him. And then they have a, some other stuff and they both agree that Jesus ends up in Nazareth years later. Okay, so you have a different beginning. You have the similarity, the birth, the shepherds, and Nazareth. But you have totally different things happening between. Okay, when you look at, at uh, Matthew, you have the, the Magi, the wise men coming. And you have uh, Herod killing all the babies two years old and down. The flight to Egypt, and after Herod was dead, Joseph comes back and goes up to Nazareth. But in Luke... What you have after the shepherds is the circumcision in the temple, the naming and the offering in the temple, and Jesus sends up a Nazareth. Okay, now how on earth could you possibly trust two different gospels that are so different? Okay, that's how the charge would be leveled. Well, let's, let's see about harmonization. And again, we're going to go to the text and look for clues. When it comes to the Magi, there's two, there's two interesting things. Where was Jesus when the Magi came, and this is what ruins your nativity scenes. Chapter 2, verse 11, or thereabouts. He's in a house. He's, he's not where he was born. He's in the house. And, now we know Herod was just a, he's nuts. But even for someone that's as evil as he was, if Jesus had just been born, why would he kill babies that were two years old and younger? I mean, certainly a soldier can tell the difference between a baby that's one day or two days old and two years old. Well, maybe he just was nuts. Or maybe something else is going on. Um, go over in the column under uh, Luke. One of the clues is 
when was the baby circumcised? Circumcision happens eight days after birth. So we know that the circumcision happened right away. But with the Magi, we're not so sure. Then you have the naming, Jesus naming an offering in the temple. Why is that there? Well, again, we know that happens relatively quickly. But also what's really important is you have the story of Simeon. And Simeon is, has been told that he won't die until he sees the Messiah. He sees Jesus and he breaks forth into this beautiful song, this hymn. And in there he talks about being a light to the Gentiles. Well, see, one of Luke's themes is that the gospel isn't just for the Jewish people. It's for Gentiles as well. This is a really important story in Luke. And it sets the stage for the fact that Luke, that Jesus has a ministry not just to Jews, but to Jews and Gentiles. That's why the travel narrative, that, that middle part between uh, the three or so years in Galilee and his trip down to Jerusalem, it's, it's very short in the other Gospels. And Luke, it's very long. And the reason it's long is he's traveling outside of Israel. Okay, this Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles, uh, to the Greeks, is very important to Luke. And that's why this the story about Simeon is so important to him from day one. Jesus was, designed, was, was destined to be a light to the Gentiles. Okay, how are you going to put all these things together? Can you conceive of some kind of historical situation that could have given rise to both these accounts? Well, yeah, it's really simple, isn't it? Okay, so Jesus was, was born. The shepherds came that night. Eight days later, he would have gone and been circumcised. Relatively quickly after that, he would have been named and offered in the temple. And then very easily could have gone back to Bethlehem. Okay, Mary just had a baby. The, they weren't technically married yet. And, uh, you know, why go back to where they're going to get all that kind of social static? Um, Joseph was from Bethlehem, right? It's his ancestral home. So you could see that he stayed there. It makes sense that he could have stayed there for a while. A year, year and a half or so afterwards, the Magi come. Herod finds out since Jesus has been alive for, I'm just guessing, but at least a year. He's going to play it safe and kill all the babies that are two years old and down. They go down to Jerusalem, uh, Egypt. They stay there till Herod dies, and then they return home, but they go all the way up to Nazareth. Okay, is that possible? Is that a possible way to handle the synoptic issue when it comes to the birth of Jesus? Sure, it makes perfectly good sense. There was selection of material, and there are purposes governing that selection. All right, uh, in, the, in the Matthew passage, there's prophecies. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Uh, it was important to Matthew in writing to the Jews that Jesus was seen as a fulfillment of prophecy. And out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Uh, there is, we, uh, he has another quotation, when the babies are killed, it's a fulfillment of prophecy, something that's important to the Jews. Not so much to the Gentiles, who doesn't have any real reason to include it. But do you see how that works? All right, that's what harmonization is. And when it comes to apparent contradictions in the synoptics, harmonization can solve uh, just about every problem you can imagine. And you look at some of the other situations that are often held up. What about the cleansing of the temple? Uh, in the synoptics, Jesus cleanses the temple at the end of his ministry. At John, he cleanses it at the beginning of his ministry. Is that a contradiction? Well, is it possible that Jesus did it twice? That to, to inaugurate his ministry, to establish the fact that he is going to be uh, contrary to Judaism, he goes and he, and he pronounces judgment and he purifies the temple. He goes through a three and a half year ministry. Nothing has changed and he purifies as an act of judgment. If you look at Leon Morris's commentary on John, he actually points out all the things that are different between the John account, where Jesus um, cleanses the temple at the beginning, and the synoptics that put it at the end. Uh, very easily could have done it twice. Very easy. Order of temptations is another very simple answer. In Matthew, it's he turned the stones to bread, and he was tempted to jump off the temple, and then he was tempted to uh, worship Satan. In Luke, the, the temporal connectives are gone. And it's stoned to bread, and he was tempted, jump, uh, worship me, and he was tempted, jump off the temple. Now, the temple's in Jerusalem, and from a literary standpoint, for Luke, the city of Jerusalem is very important. And so, from a literary standpoint, the temptation to jump off the temple was the culmination of those. And the problem is, in English, when we see things in sequence, we, we view them automatically uh, sequential. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's a peculiarity of English. It doesn't carry over into Greek. A Greek, when you have a sequence, doesn't assume chronological sequencing. That's just not how the language works. So, yeah, um, probably because the temporal connectives are in Matthew, that that was the actual order. But that's not important to Luke. Luke's not writing a chronological uh, recounting. He's writing a orderly account. Okay? 
So that's what um, harmonization is. You know, again, as parenthetically, let me just mention, so many modern biographies uh, suffer from a Facebook obsession. It's just every little detail is important. And they just, they, just want to, they just want to detail after detail after detail. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, does the biblical author have to tell us everything or can each writer relay the information that he wishes to convey in order to accomplish his purposes? Does he have to tell us everything? No, of course not. That's a modern obsession with details. And that's not the way biographies were written. And you go look at Ehrman's book, you, you, can, you can see how this works out. Ehrman emphasizes the difference between uh, Matthew, um, I mean, between, between the synoptics. So, for example, in Mark, Jesus is silent and fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 22. In Luke, he shows concern for the women who are crying. He deals with the, uh, the thief on the cross. I uh, father into your hands, I commit my, myself. And there's quite a bit of difference there, isn't there? Is there so much difference that they both can't be true? No, of course not. They can both be true. Jesus hung on the cross for a long time. Uh, during a, a stage of that, he could have been absolutely silent, fulfilling the prophecy. But then at other times, he could have responded to the thieves, responded to the women, uh, forgave the people who were crucifying him. Um, you can conceive how both of those things can be true, and they both fall within the purview of what the writers are writing and how they're writing it and what they're trying to accomplish. It's, it's, it's not that hard to deal with that. Uh, was there one or two donkeys? Uh, this is an interesting one. In uh, Matthew, it says, Jesus says, say, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there were two of them there. But in Mark and Luke, uh, they both have a colt, singular. And in John, he talks about a donkey's colt. Well, I, unless Jesus was really bow-legged, uh, and I don't think he was, um, he, he's not riding on two donkeys. Um, if one gospel writer says that there was uh, the, the one and then uh, another one with them, and the other one only say there's one? Does that matter? No, of course not. Or if uh, Matthew is an uh, instance of Hebraic parallelism, that both the donkey and the colt are the same animal, then that's an interpretive issue. But it's not hard to imagine why one writer would see two and the other ones would only talk about the one that Jesus was actually writing on. No, that's, not, that's not hard to do at all. So just a parenthetical comment on uh, the obsession with details and thinking we have to say everything because we don't. Biographers, uh, even today, a good biographer is not going to tell them everything that he or she knows about the person they're writing about. So that's a synoptic problem and apparent contradictions and harmonization, and it really does solve a lot of problems. The second place in which we're going to deal with um, contradictions, and I'm just going to hit this one kind of quickly, is the whole area of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the, the science and the art of biblical interpretation. And it's basically how do we study our Bible, all right? And sometimes we can see what appears to be contradictions, but the real problem is we've misunderstood the passage. We have misinterpreted uh, the passage. In one place, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. In another place, he says, if you're not against me, you're with me. Well, isn't that kind of the opposite? Well, yeah, at first glance, they're the opposite, but then you have to ask the question, have I interpreted them properly? Uh, the disciples are unhappy that someone other than the 12 is, is doing miracles, He's, but the person's obviously a follower of Christ. He's just not one of the 12. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Within that context, if you're, if you're not fighting me, and he's not fighting me, he, he's for me. It's okay. But when it comes to the context of Pharisees, Jesus says, hey, you, got you can't sit on the fence. And if you're not actively for me, you are by definition against me. So it's two statements that sound like the contradictions, but that's just because we've misinterpreted the verses. And so many of these kinds of contradictions go away once you come to understand what the passage is really saying. Another example is Paul and James on Abraham. In Romans 4 and in James 2, they both quote Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right. The problem is they both draw opposite conclusions. <laughs> they cite the same passage, the same person, and uh, Paul quotes it to prove that justification is by faith. James quotes it to prove that justification is by works. Okay, gave Luther hissy fits and many other people as well. Well, is that a contradiction? Well, it depends upon what the word justification means, right? For Paul, he's talking about how do you enter into a right relationship with God. James is talking about how do you live in such a way that shows you are in a right relationship with God. And uh, you enter into the relationship by faith, and that's illustrated by Abraham. And you live in a relationship by faith, and that's also illustrated by Abraham, right? 
So you can quote the same passage, and because they're under, their use of the word justification is different, you can come up with what sounds to be a contradiction, but it's not. It's not a contradiction at all. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I can never trust the Bible. I mean, it teaches that slavery is good. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it, it doesn't. All, all the seeds for the abolition of slavery are sown in, uh, especially Paul. Uh, the discussion of Onesimus and Philemon. Uh, he, is, he is to receive the slave back, not as a slave, but as a brother. See, Paul's radically redefining what it is to be a human being. Um, in 1 Timothy, in the list of sins, uh, being in slaver, uh, someone who sells slaves, is Paul's interpretation of the breaking of, the, of one of the, of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's, it's a sin to sell people. So the seeds are all there in Scripture. It, it, Paul had other issues that were more pressing than social change, uh, the spread of the gospel. Uh, but that's not to say he liked slavery or he endorsed it and said it was biblical. He doesn't. That's an interpretive issue. So the, the second basic category of contradictions are the result of us misunderstanding what the Bible is actually saying. And thirdly, there are what appear to be contradictions between the Bible and history and the Bible and science. And here, I just want to be cautious. Uh, it's certainly possible, although you never know it from some of the discussions, that the secular source could be wrong. When the Bible seems to disagree with history or science, well, maybe history or science are wrong. Uh, this is going to sound silly, but there was a well-known German uh, Old Testament scholar named Wellhausen who dictated uh, Old Testament scholarship, I don't know, for 100 years. And he argued that a lot of the Old Testament couldn't have been written by the people that we traditionally think have wrote it, um, and certainly not as early, uh, date-wise, that we think it is, because writing wasn't invented, he said, till the, uh, uh, what, four or 500 B.C. Well, that's, he's just wrong. Maybe it was a thousand. That's just wrong. I mean, we have alphabets going way back into the third millennium BC. Uh, Wellhausen argued that uh, the discussion about Paul, I mean, um, Paul, about David playing a harp couldn't possibly be historically accurate because music hadn't been invented. Can you conceive of any point in time in the history of, of mankind where there wasn't music? Of course not. Of course not. Sometimes the secular source is just wrong. Uh, there's a debate on Luke where he dates the census during the rule of Quirinius. Well, it could be that the secular source we have for dating, oh, the problem is that the dates that were given elsewhere for Quirinius don't match up with the biblical account, so they both can't be right. And well, maybe the secular source is wrong. It, why is it always seems to be the Bible is told that you're wrong? Well, it's just, that's just not the case. The secular source could be wrong. It's also possible when um, scripture seems to disagree with science that, oh, I don't know, maybe science is wrong. I mean, could be, right? I mean, for, for a long time, we thought that the best way to heal someone was to cut them and let them bleed out. Now you look at it now and you go, that's stupid. When someone's sick, they need their blood. I mean, it's, it's, bleeding is the worst thing you possibly can do. Yeah. Science was wrong. And it might be in, in some of these discussions between the Bible and science that uh, science also needs to have a little humility and understand that they have been wrong in the past. Science tends to correct itself, but it's not always right. It's not always right. But again, the other side too brings up this whole issue of hermeneutics. I think you have to be very careful when science and history appear to contradict each other that maybe the secular source is wrong, but maybe your interpretation is wrong as well. Uh, if you get a really old Bible, you will see that the heading of the first book is Genesis, the Book of Beginnings, 8008 BC. Yeah, it was never part of the text, but it was added into a, a series of events. Um, I think probably counting back through the genealogies to get to 8008 uh, BC is not an accurate way to handle the genealogies. And our interpretation was simply wrong. It was, it was just wrong. Um, you know, he's talking about the, the contradictions, contradictions between Genesis 1 and science. Well, maybe science is wrong a bit on evolution and creation. Or... And I'm, you know, I don't want to, this is a side discussion, but maybe Genesis 1 isn't meant to convey science. It's meant to convey theology, that the world was created by God. It was created uh, intelligently, on purpose, with men and women as the apex of creation. I mean, after all, you have light day one before you have the sun day four. What's going on? Well, the greatest God in almost any cosmology is the sun. And Moses comes along and he writes, our God is so much greater than Ra." that he can create light without the sun. 
So I'm just saying that in this whole thing of potential contradictions between the Bible and science and the Bible and history, a little bit of humility on all sides is a good thing. But it's not always the Bible that has to be wrong. Uh, we might be interpreting incorrectly or science is wrong or under, un, our understanding of history is wrong. Let me conclude with this. When people come and they say, I can't trust my Bible because of all the contradictions in it. And, I mean, I don't, I've lost track of how many times I've heard that. The first thing you should say is, can you show me one? Just show me one. What you will find, I believe, is the vast majority of people don't have a clue where the problem passages are. And there are problem passages. There are, there are, there are what appear to be contradictions that are a little hard to explain. But you need to know if that person truly has an intellectual problem with apparent contradictions in the Bible or whether they're just mimicking what their professor in college said or what book, some book they read said. And that's not the real issue. That The real issue is they don't want to submit to God. So if you're going to have a discussion on contradictions, start by saying, show me one that you're struggling with and then let's work on it together. Vast majority of the time, they won't, they won't know one. They won't know one. The second thing I want to encourage you is that there almost always is a conservative answer. There almost always is an answer to these contradictions. Um, some are a little more difficult than others, but the vast majority of these contradictions can be so easily explained. Uh, when I was in grad school, Daryl Bach and Craig Blomberg were two of my best friends. We went to the same school in Aberdeen, Scotland. And thir Thursday was my favorite day because Daryl would come in from, he lived in a little town called Torfins outside of Aberdeen. And Craig and I would meet him and we'd have lunch together and then we'd argue. <laughs> we, it was the best learning experience of my life, I think. And we argued, disgust. Uh, everything. We talked about women's role in ministry. We talked about dispensationalism. We talked about errors in the Bible. Well, I had gone to a seminary that just matter-of-factly taught that there were errors in the Bible, and I had, without thinking, had picked it up. Daryl went to Dallas Theological, and Craig went to Trinity, two schools that actively taught their teacher, their students, that there weren't errors in the Bible. And when we were talking, what about this passage? And Daryl would give the answer and go, oh, that's kind of obvious. And Okay, what about this? And Craig would give, well, give an answer and go, that yeah, that's, that's not a contradiction. And what I've found is that there almost always is an answer to these problems. I had not been taught them, so I was unaware of them. I, I have learned them since. Um, but um, there almost always is a conservative answer. And that just takes you to the conclusion, and that is that I believe that Scripture deserves the benefit of the doubt. I think Scripture has shown itself to be unbelievably accurate internally coherent and consistent. Uh, it, it, it fits into history and, and what we know about science. Uh, it fits into all that so beautifully if we interpret it correctly and if we have a fair view of history and science. And I think, yeah, there's some issues, there's some questions I'm not completely sure of, but I think scripture deserves the benefit of the doubt because it has proven itself to be true over and over and over again. And so I'd encourage you to look through these issues, find the Daryl and Craigs in your life, and talk through some of these issues, your pastors, your um, friends in school. Come to a point where you trust the Bible. It's not full of contradictions. It's, it's just not. Um, give it the benefit of the doubt. Understand that if somebody brings up in a contradiction that you can't explain, there's someone somewhere uh, that can. And I've listed on the class page of a book by Craig where he just goes through probably every major apparent contradiction and gives you very good answers for it and uh, trust it trust it thanks okay um i first want to make a disclaimer um i agree with everything he said except his genesis comment i knew you were <laughs> <laughs> i am i'm a literalist when it comes to genesis and um Although I won't go into my reasons for that in extreme detail, um, I'm a very intellectual person. I'm sure you can tell that by now. I enjoy the arguing, the reasoning and that. So for me, it was never just a, well, it is like it is, whatever. I just accept it. I did have that viewpoint, but I still questioned, like, how could we have dinosaurs, you know, you know, and I... I couldn't reconcile them. And um, I had a mother who 
literally became a Christian like a year before I was born, essentially. So she was not, she learned a lot, but I mean, she, and she's different to me. She's not very theological. She's more of a feelings-based person and stuff. So, you know, I, I asked her these questions as a child and her answers were, oh, well, there's a verse that says, to God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So maybe when you say the day, it wasn't really a day. And I was like, uh, maybe, but I was still young. So I didn't have good research behind me. Um, but through my own research and listening to some really great teachings by Christian scientists, there, there are Christian scientists who believe in a literal six-day creation and use science to prove that it is possible. So um, I know a lot of Christians get very uncomfortable uh, with the six-day creation. Two weeks ago, my theology class came up and I started arguing with the teacher because he was saying um, the six-day creation, although he does believe God did create those things, he doesn't believe it was in one day. He believes this was over a large amount of time that we don't know. And myself and one other guy kept arguing with him back and forth about it in front of the class because we're literalists. Um, and I, the reason I argued was not so much for the sake of arguing, but there were people in the class who, there's always those people that when a teacher speaks, everything they say is God given gold, right? Mm -hmm. And I always worry about those people, the people who will listen and just go, oh, okay, that must be the truth because this person did research. You know, I'm not saying you should be skeptical of every single Christian who ever opens their mouth, but you should always go back to scripture and check things. You should always do your own research and then come to your own solid conclusion. Um, so I just wanted to really put out there for all the other people in the room who hadn't done their own research, there, there does exist really smart Christian people and Christian scientists who do hold to a literal six-day creation and have their own proof and evidence for it. So at least go and look into it and then make your decision. So I just want to say that because I didn't want anyone to walk away and go, oh, well, maybe it is metaphorical without knowing that there is a good argument for a literal six-day creation as well. Um, which kind of leads me to another point since, um, I mean, we still have a few weeks to go with this course, but um, I'm going to put a poll on Facebook because I want to know, I don't want to continue to do this type of course that's very like, oh, let's watch a video and it's very uh, intellectual. I want us to go more into a Bible study and learning the word of God and applying the word of God, which is infinitely more important than this, although this is still important. But there's just so many topics that we won't cover. Like for example, you know, creationism. Is it possible that it was six days? How, how do we fit dinosaurs into the picture? You know, is it possible that both could be true and stuff like that? Um, but if there are people that are interested in that, uh, I'm gonna put a poll up to see. And if, you know, there's at least three people, maybe two others besides me who are interested. I'm thinking of maybe on another night of the week or maybe after this on a Saturday or we'll figure it out whatever's best for the people who are interested. We can then do an extra class that will have different topics. Like we'll do creationism one week and may, we'll, it'll always be kind of like apologetic themed. So maybe we'll do like the Muslim faith and how do you speak to a Muslim and break it down. And what about Mormons or, you know what I'm saying? So we can actually like go into the weeds and very specific which, with each of these things. Um, but I don't wanna bore everyone who's really not into that stuff forever with these types of topics. So please do respond on the poll and don't be afraid to say no, it's fine. Just please respond to the poll. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I wanted to make two comments before we go to questions on um, the topic that we're on today. The fact that there might be contradictions in the Bible is really, in my opinion, only a problem for Christians. It always is interesting to me how skeptics find that to be a problem. Yeah. And he, here's why I say that. 
if they believe that the Bible is not the inspired word of God, but it's written by people, why wouldn't they expect to find things that maybe don't 100% line up, right? I mean, if they go and take any other historical account, let's say all the documents that speak about the life and the wars of Julius Caesar, if they found one sentence in there that science disproved or um, they found to not be historically accurate, like, oh, we can't find record of a town like this that Caesar apparently invaded, would they then go and say, yes, Caesar didn't exist then? You know, like, would they throw out everything they know about Caesar because they found one contradiction? No, they would probably go and say, mm, well, this is fishy. Something went wrong here. Maybe the guy had it wrong. Maybe we're interpreting it wrong, but they wouldn't throw out everything. But when it comes to the Bible, they're like, oh, contradiction. Everything is wrong. Throw it out. It's lies. You know, the fact that there are contradictions should only really bother Christians because we believe that the Bible, well, if you're an orthodox reformed Christian, you believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God, right? There are other Christians who have more loose interpretations of the Bible. And if you're one of those, we should really have a one-on-one -on -one meeting and have a discussion. But most of us believe that it's perfect and inerrant um, to varying degrees, um, but we all kind of side more on the the, the inerrant side then that, yeah, it's full of errors and it's kind of just up to your interpretation side of things. And so um, it's only a problem for us, right? When we find a contradiction, it should bother us because it's like, well, if this is the word of God and it's perfect, how come these things don't line up, right? So it always is entertaining to me how these skeptics have such a huge issue with it when really they shouldn't. Um, but regardless, it is our duty to, to look into those things. And so um like he was saying at the end of his his argument um every time i've found one of those contradictions myself or someone else has brought one up to me that i wasn't aware of i have always been able to either with my own brain and logic figure out a harmonization that makes sense or if i couldn't figure it out literally the most simple google search i'm not even talking like you really have to go to page six of Google to find it. You just Google, you know, contradiction donkeys in the Bible. And then the first page you're gonna find like five different people who have harmonized that, who have explained, hey, here's how this could both be true at the same time. Or, hey, no, you're interpreting the scripture wrong. There's always a logical answer. Um, some are way more sound than others. Like some you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. I can't believe people even consider that a contradiction. Others you're like, Whew, okay, it's a little harder to believe, but just the fact that there's a possibility that this is a reasonable explanation should be enough to give you some peace, right? And like you said, time also shows us that science and stuff could be wrong, you know? Um, and so, whenever and it's very few very very few times but if there's ever a time where i do come across something that even if i look it up online i don't feel satisfied with the answer they gave and this is i mean i can't even think of an example to give you that's how few times it's ever happened in my life um because the bible has proved itself to be true so many times in so many ways I can live with a handful of things that can't yet be explained because I trust that there is a good explanation to it. And one day someone will figure it out. Like the whole pilot stone thing is such a great example. Every time for years, people were like, there's no proof that pilot ever existed. And if I had existed a hundred years ago, maybe that would have been one of the things that bothered me. Why is there no record of this guy that governed? You know, if Rome really kept such a great record, why can't we find anything? But if I'd had the same trust I have now of, I don't see any proof, there's no contradictory proof, but there's no proof, but I trust God. He's proved himself to be true. One day we'll figure it out. And then a hundred years later, someone finds a stone with Pilate's name on and boom, suddenly this guy really did exist. So if you ever do find one that you aren't satisfied, 
the fact that the Bible has proved itself to be true 99% of the time to you should be enough for you to be okay with maybe the 1% that you can't reconcile. Cool. All right. Um, first question is, what are some contradictions you have heard of or know of yourself? And then how did you handle these? If you didn't, if you just know about them and you just left them, that's fine too. But if you did address them, I'd be interested to hear that. Or if you just know of one that's always bothered you or you've heard someone bring up. <clears throat> Pastor Adam actually brought one up um, when he was giving the sermon about learning how to pray. Um, he said, like, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, deliver us not into temptation. But in other places in the Bible, it says he cannot tempt us. So that, that's the only one I know. <laughs> did you ever try to reconcile that or do any research into it not really i just thought it was interesting but i can see how he cannot so i'm not sure like maybe that's we're misinterpreting the text perhaps or it was mm -hmm. translated incorrectly or, yeah more than likely the interpretation one is the problem And if anyone has a good answer to that, I'm not going to give the answer. I've actually addressed this before somewhere, but I'm not going to give it now because it's not the topic. But if someone else has an answer, you're welcome to give it. Then it, it says God tests the heart of men. He doesn't, Is that's not the answer. But I remember that verse. Yeah, she's talking about, I think it's in James where it says, God does not tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by evil. But then in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, pray to God and say, lead us not into temptation. So it, it seems it seems like it's contradicting. It doesn't actually, but it seems like it is. I think I won't explain it, but the key word I think is lead. Do not lead us into temptation. Whereas in James, it says God does not tempt. So there's a pathway that leads to the point of temptation. And we're saying God don't lead us down there don't let us be brought down that path don't even let us get to the point where satan can then tempt us so you it's about for me I, it's about the pathway there's some other good interpretations too but i don't believe that that's actually a contradiction but if that is a good example thank you anyone else Mine, I've always heard a very similar one of like misinterpretations of tempt and test um, where people often say there's a lot of verses that say God does not um, tempt you. Um, and then people will try to go to um, Abraham and Isaac mm -hmm. and um, where it's God testing him, not tempting him. Um, and it's sort of people kind of stretch tempt and test as the same thing when they really do have different meanings as well as um, when God it's in a similar vein when uh, Jesus is in the desert and Satan is tempting him. And um, when he says to throw himself off and that the angels will catch him, um, Jesus says um, to not test God and people often switch that around. Um, so I think there's, those ones are pretty easy to combat in any experience I've had because it's a matter of misinterpretation on their end. But I, oh, I get that one a lot of people sort of blending tempt and test together. Hmm. I've actually never heard that one. Any others? I don't know. I, I don't know if it's like the Bible contradicting itself, but I've heard a lot of people like be a, like upset about like the like wives submitting to their husbands thing and then like you have to read the rest of the verse but um and like other like other Paul's letters that yeah I don't have like a specific one but I know that I've had conversations about them like the women covering their heads in church and like what does that mean for us or like low battery 
but yeah, I don't know if that's, I don't think that's the Bible contradicting itself, but I've heard of people being like, well, if God loves, then how can he, then, yeah. Yeah. So if you ever have that encounter, someone comes up to you and they, they say, the Bible's full of contradictions. What should your first response be? Show me. Show me one. <laughs> Show me one. Um, it works better in person because usually that's when you discover that they don't know any. Um, online, I've done this online, and I usually preface it with, "Don't Google one. Tell me one that you know of, but you can't prove that they didn't Google." But I'm pretty sure they did, because the ones that they pick are like super easy to like solve. So I'm just like, yeah, you probably just Googled and then pasted the first two that you found, um, which is fine. Cause I can just Google the response and paste it as well, you know? Um, but ask them first and then go read the passages that they say are conflicting. If you're in person say, hey, let's read it together. And, you know, pray in your spirit and ask Holy Spirit, help me to interpret it correctly. Help me to figure it out. Um, I'm a fan of, of first trying to always figure things out yourself, not only with contradictions, but just with the word of God in general. If you read a verse and you're like, I don't really understand this verse, pray about it, read it over and over, read the verses before, like really try, read some other translations of the same verse, see if that helps you out, but really try first. And then like, if you're like, no, I really, I don't know if I'm getting it um then consult like commentaries online and stuff like that um and even if you do get it like if you feel like you have the interpretation go read a commentary anyway because the coolest thing ever is when you struggle with a verse and then you feel like you've come to a correct interpretation and then you google and you find scholars agreeing with you because then you're like whoa like the holy spirit revealed that to me and it it matches up with what most scholars have spend their life studying came up with so that's very encouraging to know that you know your brain works just fine you don't have to have a seminary degree to work out everything some things are more difficult i mean there's some things i'll end up doing because i really am just like i'm really stuck um but always be careful when you google and know that you're going to find a thousand viewpoints and not all of them are going to be like sound theology not all of them are going to be reformed so like very strict conservative uh, Christianity and so don't just read the first thing that pops up read a few accounts and honestly you know sometimes I've read a bunch of accounts and I've disagreed with all of them and I think that's okay but please try don't just read something go well I don't know what it means turn the page you know just put put some effort in them. this is your soul we're talking about so it's important if you were studying for an exam and you didn't understand something a page said, you probably would be like, oh, it doesn't matter. I don't understand. I'll just go to the next one. And well, I kind of understand that. Okay, next page. Mm, no, no. You know, you you go and seek out your teacher or do more research or whatever, because you know, it's important for me to know all the details. So do research. Um, and then, so if you do that and you, you're with this person, you've uh, tried to have a conversation, you try to figure it out yourself and you can't do it. Um, you could on the spot Google and discuss some of the things that people say in front of them, though that could turn against you if like the first few ones you pick are dodgy, right? Or you could just say, hey, you brought up a good point. Um, I really like to pick up this conversation later and then go do your research, come back and address it at a later time. Um, next question. What are some reasons to explain apparent contradictions? I have a lot of points here, lots, like maybe 10. All stuff he said in the video. Um, falsely assuming that things are in a temporal order um, when they're listed. Yes. When I wrote that down, I wrote um, purpose or selection, like, when the writer was writing, what was their purpose? And keep in mind selection. Like maybe the things they put in there because they picked out a bunch of stuff and they didn't necessarily put them in chronological order. Maybe they did, but they left out chunks in the middle because they didn't seem to be important details. What was their purpose? You know, if 
it's a well-known fact by any scholar that Luke was trying to convey that Jesus came for Gentiles as well. And Matthew was trying to strongly show that Jesus was the Messiah of the Jewish people. And so when they wrote, they wrote from that viewpoint. And actually, if you, if you do like a, a little bit of research on the authors before you read their gospels, um, it opens them up in whole new ways. Like once I knew that Matthew was trying to prove Jesus was, was the Messiah, suddenly the things he was saying made sense. Why he kept quoting Old Testament all the time and kept saying he fulfilled, he fulfilled, he fulfilled because he's trying to show the Jews, hey, this is him, this is the Messiah. The Gentiles didn't need to be convinced he was the Messiah. They needed to be convinced he was God, the only God, and he came to save not only the Jews, but them. So he has a whole different viewpoint. And so they, they write according to the purpose of what they were trying to convey. So, and that doesn't necessarily contradict, it just means that they have a different opinion of what's important to include. Um, another contradiction, which used to bother me for a long time, because um, the first time I discovered this is I started to read a chronological Bible. So it puts everything in, in time order. And that's when you notice all the differences and contradictions because you're reading them exactly at the same time. Whereas if you read Matthew and then go to Luke, you've already forgotten the details of the stories in Matthew. So you don't realize that it's different in Luke. But when you read the same story side by side, you're like, whoa, there's so many things that are different. And I honestly started to get bothered by that. But that's when I started to do research and find that we can reconcile all these things. But the one that bothered me for, for a longer time was the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are different. And I'm like, I mean, that's something that, that shouldn't be different, right? If you're the son of someone, you're the son of someone that can't change. So they're, they're similar pretty far down, um, but at, at a certain point it changes and then it's different until we get to um, Joseph, right? And, um, Purpose and intent is it, and selection is important here. So there's a way to harmonize this. And one, and this is just an interesting side note, um, Matthew puts his genealogy first. And what was his intention? He was trying to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Interesting fact, the Jewish Bible, so the Old Testament, in the order that they have the books, ends with um, Chronicles, which if I'm, I stand corrected, but it ends with the genealogy. And so Matthew is picking up where the Old Testament left off and saying, hey, you know this genealogy? Look here, do, 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 Messiah. And so the whole Old Testament was waiting for a Messiah and the first book of the New Testament was showing here he is and here's the genealogy as proof, right? Um, but some of the other uh, explanations for why they start to differ there's lots and the truth is we won't know which one is true but the fact that there are logical explanations makes sense um some people say that where it starts to differ shows you joseph's line and the other one shows you mary's line even though they both end with joseph some just say then put Mary because women, you know, were viewed as lower. And so it was son of Joseph because we usually say son of the guy. But they wanted to show you that from both sides, even though he wasn't this Joseph's physical son, even if you followed Joseph's line, he would have been in the line of Judah, in the line of David. Like he was safe no matter which genealogy you went from. Um, other people say um, that um some i don't know how well you know the old testament but there was a, a tradition that um do you have a brother stephen yeah okay so old testament style if stephen had to die and ashley didn't have a baby yeah. stephen's brother would have to marry ashley to keep on the journey. and to keep the line going but that baby would be yes. stephen's baby so if you had a baby and called him John, he would be John, son of Stephen, not son of Stephen's brother. So another interpretation is people say one was doing it literally. So 
son of Stephen's brother, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's a little bit, sorry guys, my phone is dying. Um, and the other one is, no, we're gonna keep it going through Stephen, right? Uh, there's a third interpretation, something about Joseph and oh gosh, something about step families and stuff like that. I don't know, but there's there are good explanations. In fact, I think the step family is the best one, but I can't remember it now. Um, but there's some really, really good explanations out there. Um, so sorry, that was a long side point. Back to the question. What are some reasons to explain apparent contradictions? Um, the science could be wrong. Yep. The history could be wrong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're misinterpreting the passage. Yes, bad hermeneutics. We're misinterpreting. Anything else? Helene, what happened with the notes? Usually you're there like, yeah, I can name all 25,000 things. It's easier to take notes when they have those headlines. Uh, yeah, that's one thing that is sad about this guy. What's important? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I got the important stuff, but clearly I missed something. <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll, I'll read. Oh, yes, go ahead. Well, I was just saying that the biggest thing is to not get caught up in everybody's assumptions. You know, like, I mean, in, in interpretations, I mean, that's that's in anything, anything that we do, whether life, music, whatever. I mean, there's going to be the masses of what people interpret, and but there's going to be somebody that's going to interpret it some way, a different way. I guarantee it. You know, so that's, you can't put all your faith in one thing, you know, make sure you do your own homework. Yeah, definitely. All right, so I'll just read what I have. Um, maybe secular sources are wrong, which is similar to what you said, but a little bit different. Um, maybe there are different but accurate accounts of the same story. Maybe we are projecting modern literary techniques into ancient authors. So because we write history in a certain way now, we expect them to write history the exact same way. If we write in chronological order, we expect them to write in chronological order. If we expect history to be a word-for-word -word account now, that doesn't mean they did. If they, maybe back then, and this is a viewpoint, that it was okay to record history in paraphrases. As long as you stayed true to the theme, you didn't have to stay true to the 100% exact words as long as the meaning remained the same. And that might bother us today, but if that was how they wrote history back then, we can't say it's not accurate history because we're imposing our themes on them. In 500 years time, people might look back on the way we wrote history and say, well, that sucks. They shouldn't have written it like that, you know? Um, harmonization. So um, that's how, another way we can, um, What's my, oh my gosh, English. Another way we can uh, reconcile contradictions is we look at the two and we say, maybe both are right. Can I fit these two things together and it still makes sense? Um, uh, our understanding of the Bible might be wrong, not in, in the sense of just interpretation, but um, Maybe we're reading something literal that should have been a metaphor or a metaphor that should have been literal. And I think we covered everything else. Yeah. I would say the two most common ones are hermeneutics, so interpretation. Somebody is interpreting the text wrong. And then harmonization. Both are right. And you just need to reconcile the events in a specific order and suddenly they're not contradicting. Um, true or false, here's the easy one. Most contradictions can easily be answered. True. Yay. <laughs> um, true or false, do any of these contradictions change or affect the main story of the gospel? No. 
And that's another important point. If he rode on one donkey, two donkeys, or a baby donkey, what's the point of the story? He rode on a donkey. <laughs> if that's the main point. And the things that appear to be contradictory, they're never pivotal. There's no one saying, uh, Jesus didn't die on the cross. There's no account in the Bible like that. Or, oh, he was raised up for two days. Or, oh, uh, an angel came, gave him mouth to mouth and resuscitated him. You know, like all the main things of the gospel, no contradictions. All the ones that seem to be contradictions or small details that most don't matter. Some matter, but not in terms of the gospel. For example, there's a, a verse in Mark and somewhere else where it's uh, the disciples are trying to uh, exercise a demon and they can't do it. And they go to Jesus and they say, why couldn't we get this demon out? And he says, uh, he says a bunch of stuff. He like rebukes them. But the, at the end he says, um, but this kind does not come out except for prayer and fasting, right? So there's other accounts where that verse is not in there at all. And there's other accounts where it just says this kind does not come out by prayer. So although that one doesn't impact the gospel, like that's not going to affect our faith in Jesus Christ, it is kind of important because it does determine the way that we handle demons. Like, do we have to just pray or do we have to fast and pray? You know, so it's important, but it's not like our salvation is not hanging on it type of important. Okay. Um, that's my last question. I, I wanted to make, I want to ask a question about uh, Thanksgiving, but I'll get to that last. I want to make one more point uh, and, and just kind of keep this in your minds. This session was really important for um, when we actually start doing our Bible study together at when this theme ends. Um, what we're going to be doing, I don't know if I've said this before, but we're going to go through the Gospels in chronological order. So um, we'll, we'll be reading a lot of the same stories next to each other. And so these things are going to become very apparent to you. And I know it's going to make you a little uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable, right? When I would read those things. Still today, every time I come across one, I still get that feeling like a little bit scared. Like, oh no, you know, <laughs> but I always go do my research and everything is fine. But I, I on purpose want us to do it in chronological order because I feel like it'll be nice to see the whole narrative of Jesus kind of smoothly laid out and as close to chronological order as we can get. I mean, it's not perfect. Like sometimes they had to make a call and say, I think this happened before, but I'm not 100% sure. But I think it would be nice to kind of see the whole story laid out from all the different accounts. But also I'm doing it because I want to challenge your critical thinking. And so how we're going to be doing that Bible study is not going to just be a, oh, go read the passages and we're going to come discuss it. That is going to happen. But I'm going to assign to people uh, different homework. So there's going to be a um, locations and and uh, environment section. So if I say, Ashley, you're on that, it means if in the passage we read that week, there's any place or monument or location or country, she then has to go and do research on it, come back and tell us stuff that wasn't even in the text, like who lived there, how long it had been a place, um, you know, what else, what else is significant about it? Like Nazareth, people hated it. Why? Go find out why people didn't like Nazareth, you know, stuff like that. Bring a map so that we can display it on the screen and actually see, oh, look, this is the path Jesus took. Where was he going? What did he walk through? Then there'll be a people section. So any named person, you'll have to go do your research. Who were they? Why were they significant? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and there's going to be a contradiction section. So if there's any time where something seems to contradict, it's going to be your homework to come back and tell us how do we reconcile those passages to each other. There'll be some other sections as well. But I want you to do that so that 
you have a new perspective when reading your Bible and you stop reading it just like a storybook, but actually start looking at it critically and actually start to see deeper hidden things that you didn't actually see before that actually strengthen your faith and help you have ammunition against the critics. Have you prayed closing prayer before, Donna? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was fear of praying out loud, just so don't judge me. No one's going to judge you. Yeah, you're good. You have to project, though. Oh, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> project. <laughs> More pressure. Okay. Um, dear God, thank you so much for giving us this time together. Thank you for Cassandra and all the work that she's putting into it. Um, help us represent you in this world in a positive way and be able to speak about you and your word to everybody. And bless us in this upcoming week. And amen. Amen. All right. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye. Take care of COVID. Bye.